Our scripture is Exodus 21:16 and Deuteronomy 24, verse 7. Healing freedom. First of all, Exodus 21:16. Exodus 21:16. He that stealeth a man and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. Then Deuteronomy 24, verse 7. Deuteronomy 24, verse 7. If a man be found stealing any of his brethren of the children of Israel, and maketh merchandise of him or selleth him, then that thief shall die. Thou shalt put evil away from among you. Thus far in our treatment of the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal. We have dealt with property and restitution. Certain modern scholars in Germany, who are by no means orthodox, have on the basis of their study of the text, an analysis of the law, and in particular the word seal, have concluded that seal here means primarily something other than property. These scholars, notably Martin Knott and Gerhard von Rod, believe that Commandments are personal. But the second five commandments deal with people. Thou shalt not kill, that is a man, basically. Thou shalt not commit adultery with a person who is the spouse of another man or with to have relations with anyone other than your wife. Thou shalt not bear false witness against a person. Thou shalt not covet that which belongs to another man. Their point is that all these commandments being personal, the basic meaning of the commandment, thou shalt not steal, is again personal. In other words, it should read expanded to give the full connotation of the word steal. Thou shalt not another man's freedom. Thou shalt not steal another man's freedom. The primary reference is to these commandments with respect to kidnapping. But the basic reference is to theft of a person's freedom in any sense. Whether it affects his person or his property. Thou shalt not steal a man's freedom by infringing on his person or his property. Thus, the Eighth Commandment, properly understood and expanded, can read, Thou shalt not steal another man's freedom by forcibly enslaving his person or his property. Let us analyze this meaning of the commandment, then, in terms of man's purpose. Man's purpose under God is to exercise dominion over the earth under him. This duty involves the restoration of a broken order by means of restitution. kidnap and enslave a man is to rob him of his freedom. And a man needs his freedom in order to fulfill his created 
purpose. We are told repeatedly in Scripture that the believer is not to be a slave. This is stated very bluntly in 1 Corinthians 7.23 and Galatians 5.1. We are not to be a slave by becoming servants of men, compromising ourselves so that we are serving men rather than God. We are not to be servants by going into long-term debt. For the borrower, we are told, by Solomon, is slave to the lender. We are to be free men in Jesus Christ. Now, Scripture makes it clear that some men are slaves by nature. To them, the worst thing is freedom. They run away from freedom. They ask, they beg for slavery. They ask the government in one way or another to take care of them. As a result, as we have previously, previously seen, the Bible does permit voluntary slavery. That is, a man can attach himself to someone as his master. Become his slave. Serve him for his keys and whatever the master provides for him. But this has to be voluntary. There can, therefore, in terms of biblical law, be no slave market. The law forbids any runaway slave from being returned to his master. Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 and 16. Thus, the slave was really not a slave in our sense of the word. He was a man who did not feel that he could be a full-fledged free citizen. Therefore, he placed himself under some other man as his servant on a voluntary basis. We are well informed about the fact of Hebrew slavery, if we could use that word, from various non-biblical documents. Thus, the book of Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, which is in the Bible, but Ecclesiasticus, the teachings of Jesus ben Cyrus, over and over again confirmed this, that the law permitted a tremendous liberty on the part of the slaves. It was a system whereby people got security in return for a certain work. On the other hand, the law very strictly required just treatment on the part of their masters. St. Paul echoes this when he says in Colossians 4.1, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Now these points are important because they reveal the fact that the Bible, even as it condones a kind of slavery, requires a tremendous freedom for those slaves. It is a voluntary situation. It is not comparable with slavery as any other country, including our own, has ever had. The only other kind of enslavement permitted was when someone stole. He had to be a bond servant and work out restitution if he could not make restitution in cash or in kind immediately. The scriptures we read make it clear that kidnapping is regarded as one of the capital offenses of scripture. The purpose of kidnapping is related to slavery. Its basic purpose in antiquity was to seize men and to sell them in a foreign country where forcible slavery was the rule. Holding them for ransom was a minor and secondary kind of kidnapping, but either is punishable by death. The law calls the kidnapper in both these scriptures we read a thief. Now these two laws we read reveal certain things. In the Exodus passage, Exodus 21:16. 
The law forbids the kidnapping of any man, Israelite or foreigner. Whereas Deuteronomy 24-7 basically deals with the kidnapping of Israelites. Moreover, the selling of slaves is strictly forbidden. The compulsion to remain is forbidden. And the death penalty is mandatory for any infringement on a man's liberty by kidnapping. The passage in Deuteronomy also says, If a man be found stealing any of his brethren of the children of Israel, and maketh merchandise of him, or selleth him, that that thief shall die, and thou shalt put evil away from among you. The passage, maketh merchandise of him, does not mean too much to us today because the word merchandise has lost a lot of its original meaning that it had at the time of the King James Version. In modern language, it would mean hath tyrannized over him. hath treated him, in other words, as a non-person with cruelty in a depersonalized manner. A man, in other words, must be treated as a man at all times. It is interesting to compare these passages with the laws of antiquity. Some liberal scholars will tell us casually, these laws were like those of the Code of Hammurabi and of other ancient codes. The Code of Hammurabi is almost alone in having a law against kidnapping. But it is significant to compare the Code of Hammurabi, it is Code 14, if you want to look it up in the law of Hammurabi, with the biblical law. The Code of Hammurabi only legislated against the kidnapping of a child. You could steal a man, you could enslave him, there was compulsory slavery, there was a slave market in Babylon. There was no comparison with the biblical situation. As a matter of fact, as Dr. Cyrus Gordon, a distinguished Biblical scholar and archaeologist has remarked, and I quote, the entire population is theoretically in slavery to the king in the Code of Hammurabi, unquote. Now this, of course, was basic to the law system of every civilization in antiquity. The entire population was, in theory and usually in fact, a slave of the king or of the state. And, of course, it is precisely this theory of the state that revives wherever Christianity recedes. Today, increasingly, theoretically, every citizen is in bondage to the state. He is no longer free. Consider, for example, the 16th Amendment the Income Tax Amendment. Recently, we had a measure in Congress which had not passed the House of Representatives. In fact, they did not include the amendment to raise the exemption per person from 600 I believe, $800. The language there, of course, is significant. Theoretically, in terms of the amendment, all your income and all your property implicitly belongs to the state. When they allow you 600 or 800 or anything else in the way of a deduction, it is an exemption. It is a grant from the state to you. The state has the legal right to all your income so that we can say in terms of our law system now, the entire population is theoretically in slavery to the state. The commandment says, thou shalt not steal. 
and the meaning as these scholars who have no particular belief in scripture and treat it very casually and with contempt, basically. The meaning they recognize of the commandment, thou shalt not steal, is thou shalt not steal another man's freedom. Thou shalt not steal another man's freedom by forcibly enslaving his person or his property. A man's freedom is robbed by false weights and false measures, by fraudulent money, by the destruction or impairment or theft of his property. All these things diminish a man's freedom. Property is basic to a man's freedom. The tyrant state always strikes at a man's freedom through its property. But according to this law, neither the state nor any individual has any right to steal man's freedom in any way. Today there is an extensive awareness of the fact that man's freedom is being stolen. The new left is very angry about the establishment. They're very angry about what is going on in the universities, and they are rioting about it. They have all kinds of slogans, do not hold men faithful or spindle. And they declare that people are so treated as though they were just something to be fed into a computer. And since they're right. And conservatives, too, are very angry about the loss of freedom. And they produce reams of literature to document this loss of freedom. And they're right. But is there any solution to the matter apart from biblical faith and law. Every society apart from this rapidly goes into slavery. Franklin, when the Constitution was adopted, made it clear that men would either obey God end up obeying men. And of course, we are obeying men today in And we are seeing our freedom stolen. The state is transgressing this law not only by acts of confiscation and manipulation of money and taxation, but also by every undercutting of biblical faith and education. A state-controlled system of education is a theft not only by its taxation, but by its destruction of public character. It destroys godly society. Let us turn back the pages to just a hundred years ago. 1869, New York City. At that time, most of the country was a very devout, God-fearing, law-abiding area. There were two areas where there was disorder in some frontier towns and New York which is known as Sodom by the sea. New York was regarded as the epitome of everything that was horrible. And if in those days a farmer saw his son go to New York, of course his daughter never went there unless she were in the company of her husband or father, the family would send him off to New York City with prayer. They'd be in prayer for him the whole time he was in Sodom by the sea. And yet, here is what Robert Sobel, in his book, Panic on Wall Street, A History of American Financial Disasters, has to say about Wall Street in 1869. He speaks of the integrity of the day. 
which I quote, might be illustrated by noting that by the late 1860s gold was transported openly, carried by messengers in heavy canvas bags. From time to time, one of the bags would burst and its content, usually $5,000 in gold coins, would scatter in the street. Wall Street, 1869. The custom on these occasions was for a crowd to form a circle around the area, not moving until the messenger had picked up and accounted for all the coins. Anyone who stepped up to take a gold piece would receive a boot in the rear, unquote. Now, can you imagine anyone taking a bag of $5,000 gold coins down Wall Street or any other street today without an armed guard? And can you imagine him ever collecting that bag or the contents of that bag that first on any street of any city in the United States today? Something has happened, has it not? There has been a loss of public character. There has been erosion, serious erosion of the faith and character of the people, and this has robbed every one of you. You are robbed every time you go into a store today. Why? Because the thefts which are so high today are written into the price of the merchandise. You are robbed every time you take cash. Why? Because those who use credit cards now are so often deadbeats that the collection cost by whether it's a bank or a collection agency that handles the credit card has been raised so that on any, every credit purchase, because it increases its volume of business, the business goes along with it, they are getting 5% less. The Wall Street Journal in the last week remarked that a lot of the bigger customers are now demanding if they see a sign Bank America card honored or any other such sign, they will not do business unless they get a 5% cash discount. And so the credit card business is beginning to create a great deal of unhappiness in many areas. The more lawlessness grows, the more you are robbed in that your peace and security and the cost of items to you increase. It is interesting to note what archaeologists have reported concerning Israel in the days when the law was kept. Israel in those days was, incidentally, a different country from now in that it has had 20 centuries of devastation and it is no longer the heavily wooded country it once was. But it was in those days a beautiful country, well wooded, with many streams flowing that are now dry, and a country rich in field stone. So construction was normally by stone. Go to the archaeological excavations in the areas round about ancient Israel, and you find that not only are the stone walls still standing, heavy construction, sometimes a couple of feet thick and more, but the very doors of these homes were made of stone. in order to protect themselves from thieves and marauders. 
not of wood, because the beast could start a fire up and the beast and burn down the door and then enter to murder and rob the inhabitants. But at the same time, what was the situation in Israel? Stone walls, fine houses, but a curtain for a door. A curtain for a door. Why? The climate was mild and warm year-round. The only purpose of the door was for privacy, and a curtain was sufficient, a drape. Because there was no need, since you had a law-abiding people, you had a stone door and a lock. As early as the early 1950s, I was told when I lived in Palo Alto, the inhabitants of Palo Alto never locked their door. They'd go away and come back, and there was no need for a lock because thefts were unknown. No longer be there. I was in an out-of-the-way place in the Dakotas not too long ago, and I had to catch a plane but had two or three hours to wait. And the minister told me and the man who was driving me to the airport to go and wait at his home for a couple of hours and then go to the airport. He had not been home for three days, but he said, It isn't locked. Just go and walk in. Nobody walk up, locks their doors around here. It's still an oasis of law. There's law there not because they have a high percentage of police officers. They have hardly any. But because there is still character. Community, incidentally, of 25,000 people. Thou shalt not steal. But if we are going to live as the neighbors of Israel live, behind the stone walls and the stone doors so that at night they could not burn us out from our home. If we live in a state of siege, if it becomes unsafe for women to be out after dark as it increasingly is, anyone after dark in some of our cities, have we not been robbed? Robbed of our freedom? Thus, the same lawless, sea-living condition is again beginning to prevail. A man is free if his person and his possessions are under his control. And to the degree that his person and his possessions are free, a man is free. had as its original meaning a property owner. A property owner. A man who could say, my home is my castle and this is my territory and no one can step across there without my permission. Today, free man in the sense that a man had property in the early American sense that was beyond taxation. The state had no right to tax it. The state had no right to walk upon it. This is his castle. The free man in that sense is gone. Except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain to build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman 
and the slaves were bought and sold by the Negroes themselves to Arabs, and the Arabs sold them to the slavers. Uh, but those people had been slaves and were slaves for some time. In fact, there was nothing but slavery in Africa. Every chief owned his tribe. He could sell it right out from under him. In fact, they still do. Uh, sometimes, uh, to this day, there have been instances within the past few years of a Negro chief of a tribe becoming a Muslim and then selling all his uh, tribes in order to have the money for a pilgrimage to Mecca and to live high there too. Never even learned to read. But 
people who are trying to exalt the Negro past have gone into that sort of thing, and they've uh, spoken of the school of Timbuktu, and then somebody quotes that, and it becomes a university, and then it becomes quite a tremendous cultural center. Uh, this is ridiculous. This is a myth that has been manufactured wholesale. There's a very interesting book now on some of the very great Negro empires of Africa. Well, the trouble with the whole book is that what it is describing is, uh, in reality is the slave empires that the Arabs created. And they did create some very, very powerful states built huge stone cities and the like. But it was the Arabs running it, and the Arabs were utterly ruthless. These were not Negro states. If they want to portray a Negro past, it's good. Let them portray the achievement of some of the free Negroes in this country who have done remarkable things. But these are the very people they're running down. Yes, the uh, point made by St. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians is that every man is to stay in the condition in which he is unless he can work himself out of it peaceably. In other words, it tells the slaves that their route to freedom is not rebellion and murder and that sort of thing, revolutionary. But they have an obligation to be free men in Christ and to do this lawfully. Now, this could be done even under Roman law and Greek law because the slaves had the opportunity to make money on the side. He could do things on his own. Now, this seems strange to us that we forget that slavery basically was a status symbol in most of civilization, including the South. Only a minority of the slaves ever worked. Slaves were a status symbol. But a Roman household might have 25 slaves of whom two or three were working. To be a slave owner, you had to work hard for a while, there's quite a bit written on slavery in the Roman Empire. One or two people tried to run some uh, mines using slave labor, and it didn't work out. The slaves weren't used to working. They were white-collar people. This is why the only way slavery could operate on the southern plantations, and there were southerners who wrote books about this, they were so upset, they said the South was destroying itself through slavery. President Pierce told the abolitionists, give the South enough time and it will destroy itself, and they'll have to get rid of the slaves. The only way they could operate profitably was to have fresh land, work it a few years, and then move out to another place. The old land, after it was, was mined by slave labor, was unfit. Why? You had to have a tremendous ratio of profit when you had a, when you had slave labor, because you were supporting old slaves and little kids. So you were a welfare state for a fair number of people. Then. You didn't get the work out of them that you did out of free labor. This is why, for example, the Southerners would hire free white men if there was any hard work to be done or any dangerous work. Because they didn't want their slaves to get hurt. Because, uh, after all, they paid good money for them and decided they wouldn't do the hard work. As a result, you had to have soil that was virgin soil that would produce a high yield for a few years 
or you didn't make money off your cotton. This is why a handful of slave-owning people had to expand westward in state after state. Only one out of 18 white southerners was a slave holder. Only a very small handful of those had more than one or two slaves. So it was a minority. The minority of those who owned slaves in the South, incidentally, included some Negro slave owners who had been freed and had become wealthy plantation owners. And they were really hard on their slaves. They didn't put up with nonsense. So slavery was a ridiculous, non-economic fact everywhere. And as a result, in Rome, to get back to the original point, this is what St. Paul was saying. All right, if you're a slave and you become converted, don't run off or start a revolution or anything. Work. Buy your freedom. Most of the time you have nothing to do. Go out and get a job. Your master will be glad to see you do it. And this was regularly done. A slave would make money on the side and could buy his freedom. Because there was nothing for him to do in the average household. What would you do with 18 slaves in a house? Or 20? Or 10? Even without modern conveniences, you'd have trouble finding really any work to do. You'd assign more than three-fourths of them to taking care of each other. That was the reality. We have all kinds of ancient documents to that effect and all kinds of documents from the South. Slavery was an albatross that hung the South. It bled it. Yes. Thank you. 
On the way over, they were told what the corporation expected of them. They weren't happy about it. You see, they were picked up in the Netherlands. They were Englishmen who had fled from religious persecution. Here was an opportunity to go to the new world and try to make a new beginning on their own. They were ready to go on any terms. So they left. They were stuck with whatever was told them. That was the reality. Yes.